Good evening, everyone. Welcome to our live broadcast. Going back to the old way of broadcasting. Seems like the new way is somewhat broken still. Quality apparently wasn't all that good. Right, tonight we're looking at the Anguttara Nikaya again. We're going to skip ahead to chapter 5. Chapter 4 is similar to chapter 3. So chapters 2, 3, and 4 are quite similar. So let's skip it. But number 5 gives us at least some interesting similes and teachings in regards to the nature of the mind and the development of the mind. And the Buddha gives us the simile of a, a sheaf. It says a spike, but I don't know if it's called a spike, but a piece of of a rice plant or a barley plant. If you've ever been a barley farmer, a wheat farmer, a rice farmer, you know that these things are quite sharp. And they can pierce your hand or your foot if you if they come in contact in just the right way. But mostly it's quite, you know, if you just walk across rice plants that are cut down, it's actually quite innocuous. But if one gets you just the right way, you're quite painful. So the Buddha says, if you, if it's not if it comes in contact in the wrong way, it's not going to pierce your hand or your foot. Uh, in most cases, rice or barley plants won't do that, as they're misdirected. And he says in the same way, this is a simile. So this is like the mind. If the mind is misdirected, mostly the mind can't... Uh, can't see things clearly. An ordinary mind doesn't fall into wisdom. You can't just suddenly become wise. To be able to pierce ignorance, arouse true knowledge, and realize Nibbana. Mostly we don't, right? We don't give rise to wisdom. The ordinary mind is unable to penetrate in fact, even if you're seeking out wisdom, asking philosophical questions, it's still very difficult to come across actual wisdom. Because for the most part, the mind is unable to pierce the ignorance. The mind is clouded by ignorance. So no matter where you look, how far you go, how deep you investigate, unless you can direct the mind properly, cultivate the qualities of mind that can pierce the ignorance, the words of the Buddha, piercing the ignorance. I'm looking at the translation, actually. Avijang bhechati. Bhechati. 
cut. It's actually not pierce, is it? Contramindity. To destroy, to split, to sunder. Ignorance. Break through the ignorance. But a well-directed uh, spike of rice or barley plant will be able to pierce your hand or your foot, cause a lot of pain. But it pierces, and this is how the misdirected, uh, the well-directed mind is able to pierce ignorance, arouse true knowledge, and realize nibbana. I think if it goes without saying, if you're familiar with our technique, it's easy to see the application here. You know, it's it's out of not paying much attention to to words of the Buddha, like in the in the in this vein, that we become somewhat suspicious of the sort of piercing technique involved in our tradition, right? Ordinary meditation is quite comfortable. It's about watching the breath or looking at the body, examining things. But it's not piercing. Ancient meditation was very much about using a word to pierce through the ordinary state of the mind and to cut to that object, whether it be a samatha object, a concept, or that we we pass an object, a reality. So when we say to ourselves, pain, pain, we're piercing through. This is a piercing, it's a penetrating sort of technique. You can see that right away. Some people don't like it for that reason. It's too too uh, strong or too um, hard. It's not soft or comfortable enough. It's quite uncomfortable to jab right at the problem right because then you have to deal with it and it doesn't make it go away you feel pain you say pain but it doesn't make the pain go away it's a challenge to the whole way we look at things it's penetrating piercing it cuts through all the bull all the rubbish all the ignorance in the mind, it cuts right through it. There's no doubting about this practice, how you're doing it. Am I doing it right? Because it's quite simple to do, you see. It's not like it's a complicated or convoluted or difficult to understand technique. So it cuts through all the... There, there's, no, there's no wiggle room, right? It cuts through all that. Uh, chaff gets right to the heart of the matter. Those are the first two suttas. The third and the fourth one is the Buddha talking about the result of a good mind, a corrupted mind and a placid, placid is probably not the right word, padutta jittang, pasana jittang, pasana means um, this pasana means uh, it's a good mind. Let's look for a direct translation. Bright. So right, it can just mean a bright, 
a pure mind. That's it. Pure is the best. Padutta means corrupted. Dutta is uh, bad. Padutta is corrupted. Corrupted mind. So the Buddha says, "I here I've a certain type of person, ekajampupalang. I have encompassed his mind with mine, or their mind with my own mind." It's the power of the Buddha, power of meditators, people who have practiced certain types of meditation. They're able to penetrate the minds of others and envelop their minds and see what, their, what the state of their mind is. And in doing so, to someone whose mind was corrupt, I was able to see, imam hi che ayang samaye pugolo kalangareya yathabattang if at this time, if in this time, imam hi samaye, ayang samaye, no, ayang, pugalo, this person, Kalangareya were to end, make an end to his time, or to die. Just as if placed there, would fall into hell. As though picked up and dropped, thus he would go to hell. For those people who think the Buddha didn't talk about heaven and hell, this is there's so many passages like this. In fact, this exact passage occurs um, in many, many places where the Buddha talks about at the breakup of the body. Uh, at the breakup of the body, parang marana. After death, apayang dukating vinipatang nirayang upadjanti arises in hell, and going to a gone to a fallen into a suffering. Dukating, a bad destination, vinipatang a bad place, nirayang hell arises. You go to hell because of your state of mind. It's not actually because of the deeds that we do. This is misleading. People think karma leads to suffering. Karma, in terms of the deeds, doesn't. It's the state of mind. And in fact, it's not even the deeds that we've done during our life exactly. At the last moment, what is your state of mind? What is it that's leading you on at that time? When you die, what is the mind? Is it a mind of desire, a mind of aversion, a mind of fear, a mind of anger? A mind of worry or confusion? Or is it a clear mind? Now it goes without saying that the state of your mind when you die is very much dependent on states of mind during your life because they're habitual right? if you cultivate a certain type of mind during your life the chances of that being the dominant mind when you die are much greater 
And so we see another important benefit of meditation practice, that it cultivates mind states that we know to be positive, that we know to be healthy, pure, clear, conducive to happiness. Cultivation of these, you know, the moment of death is such an important mind, so important moment. We shouldn't discard or, or marginalize this sort of teaching. The moment of death is very important. If you haven't become enlightened, you're going to be re reborn again. And your rebirth depends very much on your state of mind when you die, which in turn depends very much on the habits that you have cultivated during your life be they wholesome or unwholesome. Then we have, a, that's three and four, five and six, we have more similes. Buddha talks about a pool of water that is cloudy, turbid, and muddy. Imagine you have a pool, you know, those tide pools by the ocean when I was in California many years ago, I was 13 years old, we went and saw the tide pools and there were little hermit crabs and all sorts of interesting creatures because the pools were clear, you could see them. But if a pool of water is cloudy, turbid, muddy, you won't be able to see seashells, gravels and pebbles and shoals of fish swimming about and resting. For what reason? Because the water is cloudy. What does that have to do with our, our teaching? Well, if the mind is cloudy, it's impossible for one to know one's own good, the good of others, the good of both, or to realize superhuman distinction and knowledge and vision worthy of the noble ones. For what reason? Because his mind is cloudy. The commentary says this means enveloped by the five hindrances. So the five, the Buddha gives teachings elsewhere about the five hindrances. Um, kama, chanda, desire is is like uh, dye or paint. If you pour paint into water, you can't see a thing. Uh, anger is like boiling water. If the water is boiling, you also can't see anything. Tinamida uh, is. Like muddy water, maybe that's no muddy water is probably the fifth one. Can't remember what the third one is. Anyway, the various ways in which the water can be cloudy. Same the various ways in which the uh, the various ways in which the mind can be cloudy. So this is why a simple examination of the mind doesn't work. Your mind has to be clear in order for you to see anything. In fact, that's all you have to do is clear the mind. The seeing occurs naturally, right? You were to go about filtering water, you're looking at the water, you're going to see everything that's in it. If you go about filtering the mind and cleaning, cleansing the mind, you're also going to see everything that's in it as you clean it. So this is what happens. You see, you'll practice, you'll start to see so many things. You don't have to worry about wisdom, is it going to come? Am I learning anything? 
It's a very bad attitude because as you start to worry, you stop practicing. And so, of course, you stop learning. And the way is to focus on the practice. Focus on practicing properly. Don't worry about results. They come by themselves. That's five and six. Clear and you know, clear and muddied water. The mind is clear. You can see into it. Forty-seven is a single one. It's about sandalwood. And I've never seen sandalwood in the raw. I've only seen it carved into different things. It's very. It has a smell to it. The wood is actually quite uh, pleasant to smell. It's very expensive sandalwood. Um, but I get you know, Buddha says it's also malleable and wieldy, which I didn't know. It's easy to carve, I guess. And so he says, just like sandalwood, the mind that is well developed. Anyway, we've gone through how the mind that is well developed is malleable and wieldy. Numbers 8, 9, and 10 are quite interesting. So we're going to, actually we're going to go into the next one as well. 8, 9, 10, and then the first two of the next chapter. 48 is, Bhikkhus, I do not see even one other thing that changes so quickly as the mind. It's not easy to give a simile for how quickly the mind changes. The mind is quick to change. This is the important point. Now Bhikkhu Bodhi gives some distinction here. He's, he he. He, he, he quotes the commentary as saying it's about the rising and ceasing of the mind, but he says, well, he also points to the Vinaya as meaning something different in terms of the change, how quick the mind is to change. Now, your mind will be okay right now, but if you're not careful, the mind can quickly change. But actually they're the same thing. The commentary is, is making the same point. Arising and ceasing is important because you can say, well, now I'm calm, but that mind only is a moment doesn't continue and so the next very next moment might be a completely different mind it's actually saying the same thing it's an important aspect of reality for us to understand we're not constant we're not continuous each moment is a new birth you can't rely on any one state because it's impermanent whatever power it has will will have its effect but once it's gone it's gone mind is quick you can't depend on your mind if your mind is not well trained quickly how quickly it can change you'll be and it, it usually takes you out once you're off once you're off your guard this really hits home because it happens with meditators is they think they're so so enlightened that they'll be they'll lose their they'll let their guard down and something comes anything and bam they react is there they become overconfident you have to be this is why guarding the mind is an important quality of a buddhist practitioner we guard the mind throughout our lives, throughout our daily life. So that's 48. 49 and 50 are familiar, should be familiar. Pabhasaram midang bhikkave jitam. This is a, this is a uh, 
fairly well-known quote. We've actually been through it. It's in our it was in our quotes the past year. The mind, this mind is radiant. The mind, the true mind, the mind is radiant. And it's own the, the defilements that come are like guests, visitors, interlopers. Now this this quote has been very badly misinterpreted by many Buddhists, Theravada Buddhists as well, I mean, from my point of view, uh, and from the Orthodox point of view, I mean, it's been quite criticized of these ideas, that what this means is that there's a mind that is, uh, there's a mind that is permanent, stable, happy, satisfying. You know, they extrapolate this to mean that the mind, and, and also this idea that there's a light involved, because babasara actually means it's light. So they, they focus on this light and say that's the pure mind, the true mind, which is a total misunderstanding of what the Buddha is saying here. He's just saying that the mind itself is not to blame. The mind is, uh, is just mind. If you think something, if you are aware of something, the awareness isn't the problem. It's only defilements. If you can get rid of them, everything clears up. Everything, the letting go happens by itself. Everything becomes peaceful. It's just a figure of speech. It doesn't mean that there's actually light in the mind. 51 and 52 are actually the same, and I'm not going to go over the details of them, but... Yeah, I think we'll stop there. So some interesting tidbits about the mind, I think. Let's move on to some questions. Looks like we have some questions that I missed. Is the address at Amazon wish list has been changed to the new one? Yes, it has. Mine it has anyway. If it's my wish list, then yes, it has. I think there might be another wish list. If there's another wish list, you might have to wait and ask Robin. Would you say that meditation is like cleaning your room to avoid your mom's complaints? No, I wouldn't. Meditating is like cleaning your home so that you have a beautiful, clean place to live. Nothing to do with your mom. Whenever mindfulness becomes easier for me or whenever things in general are doing going well, I tend to become careless. Now, you see, I was just talking about this. How can I make sure that I'm always on track and that I don't get caught up in temporary relaxation? Well, I don't know if you're practicing our technique, but I would recommend you start by reading my booklet and practicing our technique. If you've already done that, then you will understand how our technique works and it's something you can apply in daily life. The more, the more um, frequently you can apply it, the more vigilant you will be. But it's it's a choice you have to make, you know. It's a commitment you have to make to spiritual development, because yeah, the only alternative is negligence, and getting caught off guard. <clears throat> 
I'm highly analytical and have strong tendencies towards thinking. I, I, I. Yes, the I is the problem. However, when I'm thinking too much, it tends to lead to unease. What is a skillful way of handling it? Get rid of the I first. The idea that I am this, I am that. Because then you'll identify with these things and kind of get attached to them. If you, you know, a meditator, a better way to explain that as a meditator is when I meditate, um, thoughts come frequently because then you're talking about reality. Reality is there are thoughts and they come frequently. Sometimes they're chaotic and sometimes they're um, deep and you know, uh, convoluted or, or involved. But they're still just thoughts. And so you have to learn to let go of them, to let go of the idea of I being analytical. There's no I who is analytical. It just means lots of thoughts because that's a habit. If that habit is causing suffering, which it most likely is, better off getting rid of it, calming your mind. Well, not calming your mind, but letting your mind become more peaceful. Stop obsessing over thoughts. Whilst contemplating the body, I found great humor in the fact that we idolize people's beauty in regards to their facial feature and structure, even though it is part of the head, which has seven of the nine oozing holes. Mm -hmm. Is humor in this sense a normal part of the path? Could you comment on the role humor plays along the path? I mean, humor is, of course, something you have to be careful about. It's fairly harmless. Just don't get caught up in it, thinking that it's somehow a part of the path. It's really not. I mean, you could argue that it's a result of letting go. You see, because, you see, humor, as far as I can see, it's, it's evolved as a means of discriminating between that which we should take seriously and develop and that which we should discard. When you find something humorous, it makes it clear to your mind that you shouldn't pursue it. You shouldn't take it seriously. Right? So if someone talks about something absurd that happens and you laugh at it, the laughing is to make it clear. It makes it clear in your mind that that is something absurd. That is not something that should be cultivated as a rational individual. So um, that for that to arise, I think um, based on you know, seeing something that you took seriously as being somewhat ridiculous, I think it's, it's quite common and, and reasonable. And humor is a big part of a meditator's life, I think. I mean, it does arise. You realize how silly you've been. It becomes, it's, it's um, I guess humorous is the word. It's something that makes you smile. Um, when you see how ridiculous it is. So seeing things that you took seriously as ridiculous, I would say is a sign of progress. Whereas before you thought it was important, now you see how ridiculous that is. Some, I would say a sign of progress. Can I call myself Buddhist if I relate to the principles and fundamentals of the Buddhist teachings, but could never give up things like music and other forms of entertainment? Greens from the Netherlands. See, I'm a Buddhist monk, and we have lots and lots of rules, but Buddhists listen to music and watch entertainment. I mean, this is a part of normal life. These aren't anti-Buddhist. I mean, 
yes, it's true that the Buddha said they are a cause for hindrance and they are they will slow you down in your practice. But the only thing that really is anti-Buddhist or, or will, will prevent you from being considered Buddhist is, the key, is breaking the five precepts. If you kill, steal, cheat, lie, or take drugs and alcohol, you can't really honestly be considered a Buddhist in art in early Buddhist tradition. But if you listen to music and engage in harmless entertainment, it's not against Buddha. It doesn't make you not Buddhist. It's not, it makes you not a, not a very good meditator, perhaps, you know, in terms of doing an intensive meditation practice. But you can still meditate and do all that. Or just progress slower. It. Is that all the questions tonight? Robin drove home. <laughs> it's it's uh, there's horrors. It's horrific to listen to her talk about her driving experiences. She got lost on the way from here back to the monastery in Stony Creek, and then on the way back here, and so she ended up leaving around 3 p.m. yesterday, and she drove all night because she couldn't find a place to stay, so she didn't sleep last night. And then she came to the Visuddhi Manga at 2 o'clock. I didn't know she was dead tired, but and I just called her to come on the broadcast tonight, and she said she can't do it. She's going to have to go to sleep. She's got work in the morning tomorrow as well. It's quite impressive. Some people are just impressive like that. Basara Jitta refers to Bhavanga Jitta. I think that's insane. I disagree. Bhavanga Jitta just arises and ceases. It's nothing really. It just means the mind isn't to blame. Awareness, vinyana isn't to blame. Vinyana isn't the problem. I mean, you could argue that vinyana is dukkha, but that's you know, it's just academic. The problem is not vinyana, that's the point. The problem is the, uh, the sankhara, really. Certain sankhara. That's the point. Curious what type of music you played when you played music when you were younger. Um, classical music, but not mostly. I got into classical music, but I was more into... Uh, we were just more just into fun, you know. We were kids. We didn't know what we were doing. We weren't professional. We did a song about a a wukalar. Wukalar is a mythical beast that my friend invented. Just fun. He went on to in a different band that was more professional my older brother was our drummer and he's still at 40 years old still a drummer in a band in Taiwan heavy into music but it was he and he and me and our friend the bassist and then another friend the undertaker's son big guy who was our lead vocalist 
None of us were all that good. Be punk, punk music for a while. That's the thing, really. You do these things, you do these things, you do them, you do them, you do them. It doesn't make you a happier person. Your life isn't happier because of them. It's a myth. Misleading. It affects your mind. We're we're attacked, we're addicted to them. That's all. All right, I'm gonna go. We'll call that a night. And if you have more questions, save them for tomorrow. Good night, everyone.